You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Good morning, third service. Good to see you guys here today. You look well rested and excited about uh, John chapter 19 today, right? So if you got your Bibles, go there and uh, we're going to pick up. I was able to watch the service uh, safely as I drove last Sunday. Um, uh, and that's the beauty of technology. Uh, Br- Pastor Brent did an incredible job last Sunday. It looked like a great service. And uh, I'm so glad to be back. Um, today is Palm Sunday. And uh, one of the greatest th- days of the history of our church was three years ago on this day. It's the anniversary of our first service in this room. And so we dedicated this uh, room to uh, the, the glory of God and the gospel. And remember, we read the entire Bible uh, that month from Genesis all the way to Revelation in this room. We spoke it out loud and, and uh, prayed over this room and wrote prayers and journaled. And man, it was just a special, special time. And, um, and so that was three years ago, believe it or not. It's, it's, it's gone by so fast. And you know, it's, it's unique that after three years, here we are in, in the process of planning the new auditorium, a, a brand new and God gave us this and then we outgrew it. And so as we uh, continue to pursue that, a little update the city of Maryville has our plans, and so we're waiting on approval from the city, uh, as well as the state of Tennessee. We want a second exit here on this side of the campus, and currently the state of Tennessee is against us. Can you believe that they would be against us? And so what we're going to do is we're going to pray, and God is going to change their minds. And so uh, we need you guys to pray this week uh, that that would indeed take place. And so uh, remember that. We're also on day 50 of our 90-day challenge. So 50 days ago, um, we started the 90-day challenge to give. And as we pursue this new auditorium, um, it is of utmost importance that God's people faithfully give so that we can continue to pursue this together. So I want to encourage you and challenge you uh, to continue to give to God's church and His vision here for what he is doing. And, and uh, God is going to honor that and is honoring that. And today, as we look at John chapter 19, we are focusing on the death of Jesus, uh, the, the actual crucifixion. And you know, anytime you look at this passage of scripture, it's, it's a very dark moment. Um, it's a very somber moment. And the reality is death is a, a somber event, isn't it? I mean, when you, when you think about death, when you experience um, uh, losing a loved one, it brings so many emotions and it, it, it just has this finality to it that, that causes us to look inwardly and causes us to look at our own life. I was reminded this week, a very close uh, family uh, friend uh, passed away on Wednesday, uh, 56 years old. He died of a heart attack. No one saw it coming. Uh, healthy, healthy man. His kids were in my student ministry at my last church and um, my heart breaks for them. Um, uh, a couple weeks ago, we celebrated the life of one of our own members here, David Douglas, and had the funeral in this room. And, um, you know, we, we grieve when a brother, a sister, uh, a family member um, dies, obviously. That's a very, very uh, real, somber moment. But as believers, we trust the gospel is true. And the scripture tells us to live as Christ and to die is gain. So as we grieve the loss of a loved one, we also celebrate their gain. And, um, you know, I I think for us as a culture, um, death is something that we pretend is there but not really there. It's it's almost like it's the elephant in the room that nobody wants to talk about. Um, We feel like death is going to happen, you know, some 
some moment like 70 years from now. It's not going to happen now. So let's not talk about it. Let's not think about it. Let's not deal with it. But the reality is death is real. And each of us in this room will face death. And our culture today often, I, I feel like death is, is so far out of the conversation. Um, and, and we actually don't really experience it that much when you think about it. I mean, you, when you compare it to somebody like my, my, my parents and their generation, they, they saw it a lot you know, uh, differently. World War II, Vietnam, all of these events were taking place. And my uncles were in, were in um, the, the army and so uh, went to World War II. And you know, my mom grew up on a farm in Ohio. And so she saw death um, very frequently. When you wanted fried chicken on the farm, you didn't go to Chick-fil-A. You went out in the backyard, you caught a chicken, you cut its head off, and then you, you fried it in a pan. If you wanted, wanted bacon, you had to take the pig to the slaughterhouse. And so, you know, that's, that's the reality. They saw death. They saw their meal as, you know, something that, that, that had to die first and then be put on the plate. When, when their dogs got to a point to where it was time to put them down, they didn't get to take them to the vet and pay hundreds of dollars for the vet to do that. They took them out in the back and took care of it, right? Um, back in that time, when you know, your, your parents got old, when your aunts and uncles got old, you didn't just ship them off to the nursing home. You brought them into your home and you took care of them and you nursed them and, and uh, you watched them die. Today, we, we, we don't face it as much because we go to the supermarket to buy our food and we have to actually like teach our kids that yes, bacon comes from a pig. A pig, I don't want it. You know, it's like this chicken was actually like alive and now we had to, so it's hard sometimes. We, we see so much death on TV, but it's fake, isn't it? I mean, right, you know, we realize, well, that's not real. We play video games that include so much death and violence and, and so our kids become desensitized and the reality is even as adults, we're desensitized to death and I even, you know, being a pastor, I preach funerals and, and um, you know, I've noticed over the last five years, uh, I don't see a lot of children at funerals anymore unless it was a very close relative. You know, sometimes it'll, you know, if it was a mom or a dad or, you know, something like that. But oftentimes, you know, people, parents, young parents don't want their kids to even come to the funeral because they don't want them to expose them to that and don't want to have to have the conversation of who's in the casket and, and all that kind of stuff. So let's just not come or let's just stay out in the foyer and, and in the lobby and not have to, you know, go through that because they don't, you know, maybe that's going to be too real for them. Well, I'm not saying this is all necessarily bad. I, I, don't en- I, w- I don't think I would enjoy chasing a chicken down and killing it and then cooking it. That was a long process. I'd much rather go to Chick-fil-A. Hallelujah. But I think the point is well made, that we've become desensitized to, to, to death. And, and, and the reality is there is a finality and a realness that each of us must think through today. Death is not promised to us 70 or 80 years from now. Death for us can happen at any moment. And so when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see just how serious death is. We see just how serious our sin is. And also we see just how serious the love of God is for his people. And so as we look at John chapter 19, we see the final words of Jesus you know, you can tell a lot about a person by what they say on their deathbed. 
I wrote a few quotes down from some people you might be familiar with. For instance, the French author and philosopher Voltaire in the 1700s said this on his deathbed. I am abandoned by God and man. I shall go to hell. O Christ, O Jesus Christ. Couple that mentality with John Knox, the the pastor and Scottish reformer who I love. He uttered these words on his deathbed. Live in Christ, die in Christ, and the flesh need not fear death. I love that one. Henry Henry David Thoreau, the writer and uh, very uh, secularist, individualistic uh, man who was antagonistic towards the church and God, said this, when his aunt asked him, have you made peace with God? He, his response in only uh, his cynical words would, would utter said, I didn't know we'd even quarreled. And the great evangelist D.L. Moody on his deathbed looked to his sons and said, if God be your partner, make your plans large. It's my favorite one right there. You know, what will be your last words on your deathbed? What will be your final thoughts? What will be going through your minds as that moment comes? You see, I think each of us would say that we want to leave a legacy. We want to leave a legacy to our children. We want to leave a legacy here on this earth that not only were we here, but we made our sphere of influence a better place. We want to honor our time here because we believe what what God has done in us and through us. We want to share that with the world. And so I think it's encouraging and, and also challenging to look at the cross today and perhaps by looking at the final words of Jesus, his final statements in his last hours, we can learn something. We can be encouraged and inspired by his mentality. And, and some of you in the room today, maybe you've never given your life to Jesus When we look to the cross today, my hope and my prayer is that today would be that day that you make that decision to put him first in your life. We think approximately Jesus hung on the cross for six hours. Through all four gospels, we see that Jesus made seven statements. The gospel of John records three of them. And so I wanna examine them today, look at them today and be encouraged and inspired by them. So let's look at chapter 19 and begin in verse 17 where it says this. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Now, just hold your place there. We'll continue to read. But a few words about crucifixion. See, crucifixion was a brutal way to die. In fact, it was so brutal that if you were a Roman citizen, then you were assured that you would never die by crucifixion. Jesus, before he was actually crucified, was, was beaten. We believe that he was, he was whipped 39 times. The, the punishment for a criminal who was going to die was 40 lashes. But 
Just in case they miscounted, they always did uh, 39 lashes because they didn't want the, the penalty if they, they, they did more than 40. And so we believe he was beaten, he was whipped, and he was whipped and beaten so badly that he was beyond uh, recognition. He was stripped, completely naked, and exposed for the world to see. You see, death by crucifixion wasn't just um, enforced to kill somebody. It was enforced to humiliate someone. So as terrible as it is to imagine, our king, our Lord, was stripped naked and nailed to a cross. The Jewish people saw crucifixion as the most horrible way a man could die. In fact, the Bible says in Deuteronomy 21.13, anyone whose body is displayed on a tree is cursed by God. You see, they couldn't think of a more disgusting way to die And that is the way that Jesus died for you. In fact, this is the way that God chose for Jesus to die. When God puts Jesus on the cross for our sin, he is in fact cursed, as the scripture says. He's cursed for our sin. Our sin is placed upon his shoulders and he dies in our place. Verse 17 says that Jesus carried his own cross. Now the vertical beam would have already been on the hill. But Jesus would have carried the cross beam, weighing approximately 100 to 150 pounds. Now, after you've been beaten beyond recognition, you're totally dehydrated. He's lost an enormous amount of blood. As he begins to carry this cross up the hill, he couldn't carry it the full way. It continues to fall. And and the scriptures in in the Synoptic Gospels tell us that a man by the name of of Simon is, is chosen to help Jesus carry his cross the entire way. As Jesus was brought up to that hill, the the place where uh, they call the place of the skull, the executioner would have been waiting. Most likely he would have been wearing a leather apron. You see, this was his job. This was what he was trained to do. And in his leather pouch, he would have housed five inch nails and a hammer large enough to hammer that nail through flesh and blood and into the wooden cross. He was trained in this and he knew what he was doing and they didn't, want the, they didn't want Jesus to die quickly. They didn't want to sever any arteries. They didn't want to break any bones. And so he knew exactly where to place the nail. So they would have taken Jesus' right arm first and placed it against the wooden cross and they would have placed their knee inside the elbow of the criminal, placing the hand as close to the wood as possible. And because they didn't want him to die quickly, they would have found just the right place in the hollow part of the bone so that it would have had the support of the bone but not ripped through the flesh of the hand. And so in an instance, they would have placed the nail exactly where it needed to go and in one blow, he could have forced that five-inch nail through the flesh of Jesus and into the wooden cross. He would have then gone to the left hand and done the exact same thing, nailing his hand to the cross Then they would have taken his right foot and placed it over his left foot. And at just the right angle, because he was a professional, he would have nailed Jesus' feet to the wooden cross as well. From that moment, they would have known exactly where to place a small wooden platform. The wooden platform would go just under the criminal's feet. Why? Well, they wanted him to be able to breathe. At first glance, you might think, oh, well, at least that's a little bit humane. That's a little bit nice, isn't it? But actually, 
it just furthered and prolonged their death and suffering because crucifixion was a way not just to kill you, it was to humiliate you and to make you suffer. Dying on a cross usually occurred by asphyxiation. You basically suffocated because as the weight of your body hung on the nails, it was extremely difficult for you to take a breath. And so the platform was there so that you could put your toes on it and lift up just enough to take your next breath, and then your weight would fall again, prolonging your death. You see, death on the cross was a terrible, terrible way to die. And this is exactly what Jesus does for you. Now imagine John, the author of the Gospel of John. He was there. Remember, he was in the room when Jesus was under, uh, under the investigation and the trial, the mock trial. And, and he followed Jesus through the beating and, and, and up the hill to Golgotha. And as he watched his friend, his master, murdered on this cross, you can only imagine when he wrote this years later, he had seen thousands of people give their life to Jesus. He had seen the Holy Spirit come He had seen so many miracles take place in the early church. And if you've ever written anything down in a journal or maybe you're trying to put, put your thoughts on paper about a significant event in your life, a very painful event in your life, it brings a lot of emotion, doesn't it? And I can only imagine that as John is pinning these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the emotion would have welled up inside of him in such a way that tears would have just flooded the pages. That's where we're at in the scripture. John is there. The fulfillment of scripture is taking place. I I wish I could spend time on all the various parts of the crucifixion that fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. I encourage you to go home and read it and see all the different places, even in the last couple of chapters of John, where where it says this took place to fulfill what was written. Go back and read Psalm 22 and you'll see what we're about to see here in verses 23 and following. It says this, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. You see, this is proof that God had this planned all along. See, Judas didn't kill Jesus and the Jewish leaders didn't kill Jesus. And as much as our sin caused it, we didn't kill Jesus. It was God himself who wanted this very event to take place. Why? Because he wants his glory displayed and he wants to show us his love. He wants to provide a way of salvation for us to be able to enjoy a relationship with him and eternal life with him. So, In Psalm 22, it it says very specifically that they divided the garments of Jesus and they cast lots, a kind of a way by chance to see who's going to get what. And and, and as they do this, they are in fact fulfilling Scripture. Now, when we get to this next part here, we see the last three statements that Jesus makes. And here's where I want to spend a majority of our time today. Verse 25 says, But standing by the cross of Jesus were, were his mother And his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, and we know that's John, that's how he refers to himself in the gospel. 
the disciple whom he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now the first statement of Jesus is, Woman, behold your son. Now at first glance in our culture, we might see that as a statement that's a little derogatory. It's, a, it's not really fitting, not very respectable, but... But in fact, that term woman in the Greek and what G- the term Jesus would have used at that time was a, a term of endearment. It was a, a term of respect and a term of love. And so what we see here in this first statement of Jesus is a statement of compassion. You see, it was tradition in the Jewish culture for the oldest son to take care of the mother. Now, we assume that Joseph, Jesus's earthly father had passed away. And so there was a need for Jesus to make this statement. Who's going to take care of his mother Mary at this time? And so as the oldest son, it was his responsibility. But now that he is about to die, his compassion for his mother, his compassion for her personal needs is seen. And so he looks at John and he says, John, take care of my mother. And he looks at his mom and he says, mom, don't worry. John's going to take care of you. Now, why would he say this to John? Why wouldn't he say this to one of his four brothers? I mean, isn't it their responsibility? And in fact, it it was, but but Jesus makes this statement. We don't know why, other than quite possibly he makes this statement because he's introducing a brand new order in the world, a brand new way to look at community, a brand new way to look at family. And it's this, we have blood brothers and sisters, moms and dads, But if they aren't believers in Christ, the reality is you have more in common with the people in this room who have Jesus in their life. You see, the reality is I I believe Jesus is saying, look, the people in this room are your brothers and your sisters. He calls us to a deeper community. He calls us to deeper relationships with each other. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's praying for us, he's saying, I, I pray that they are one. Because when they are one, the world will know that you sent me and that you love them. You see, unity in the body of Christ is essential. It's so important that, that we, as we look around this room, we, we, don't, we don't just see, you know, friends. We see family members. So I know it's true for me. I, I know the relationship that I have with my brother and my father and, and those in my family who are on mission, who, who are committed to the gospel. I mean, that relationship is so much deeper. I also know that my staff, the guys that I, I, I work with every day and, and I see the mission in their heart and, and those leaders in this room who are passionate about reaching this city for the gospel, I know that connection is there and I experience that relationship and we, we trust each other. And, and I realize that, that that is exactly what I, I think Jesus is really instituting here. He's, he's, he's calling us to a deeper relationship with each other. It transcends Mothers, fathers, brothers, and sisters on earthly terms. Remember when Jesus was in the room doing ministry and they said, hey, Jesus, your mom and your your brothers are out here and they need you. And he says, essentially, my brothers and sisters are those who do the will of the Father. I'm doing just fine. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. They can wait. So he gives priority to his spiritual family. And I think we should do the same I think we're called to a deeper walk. I think we are called to a deeper relational tie to the brothers and sisters in Christ that we have in this room. So it must be and should be a priority for you. The second statement that Jesus makes is, I am thirsty. Look at verse 28. 
After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, again, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. At this point, isn't it obvious that Jesus would be thirsty? We don't have any record of him drinking anything up until this point. In fact, the Gospel of Mark in chapter 15 said that he refused a mixture of wine and myrrh earlier on, that, which would have uh, kind of numbed the pain. It was, it was known to numb pain. And, and so he, he denied that at that point. And so at this point, you know, we see again he's fulfilling Scripture. Look at Psalm 22 at another time. It says that his, his tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth. In other words, he was thirsty. So what this tells us is is this is a statement of suffering. This is a statement that Jesus indeed was suffering as a man. You know, at any moment, being the creator of the universe, he could have asked or called the angels to come and, and give him an IV or give him a bottle of water. He could have quenched his own thirst if he wanted to, but he doesn't. He endures the suffering because he is fully man. And he suffers for you. He suffers for me. This is incredible to me as I look at the cross. This was a very hot time of day. Of course, this was a very dry part of the day. He's lost a lot of blood. He hasn't drank anything. And of course, he is thirsty. But he doesn't refresh himself. We see the humanity of Jesus. And here's the other thing that I think we see. Anytime in Scripture where we see thirst... It's used as a metaphor for not living with God at the center of our life. Because anytime God is not at the center of your life, you're always longing for more. You're thirsting for more in life. I mean, before Jesus, we all had this thirst because God put it there. We have this thirst for more. And and maybe it's, you know, we tried to fill that thirst uh, with, with, with more fitness or more money or more success or more relationships or more sex or whatever we could do to make us happier, to kind of fulfill that moment in time for us to make us feel good about ourselves. We thirst. God put that thirst there in your life. But that thirst will never be quenched by worldly possessions. That thirst will never be quenched by anything that the world has to offer. The thirst that we have within our hearts, within the deepest part of our soul, is only quenched by God himself. And at this moment, the father is forsaking his son. Why? Because the sin of the world is upon his shoulders. And Jesus says, I thirst. Jesus tells us a story in Luke 16 that really brings some some more reality of of this thirsting. Because there's a story Jesus tells. It's it's a story of of a poor man named Lazarus, Lazarus and a rich man. And The rich man is living it up. He has everything that he needs in the world. And he doesn't help Lazarus. He doesn't doesn't do anything to to benefit him or to help him. And so Jesus says they both die. And because Lazarus, the poor man, had faith in God, he's sent to be comforted in heaven. But the rich man is sent to hell because he did not put God at the center of his life. And so the scripture says in verse 24, it says that the, the rich man in hell, he sees Abraham and he begs Lazarus to come and, and, and to tip his finger in water so that he might cool his tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you receive your good things 
why Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And beside all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And he answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. You see, there is a reality of death that we don't want to think about and we don't want to really spend time, you know, uh, uh, assessing in our own life. But the reality is when we face death, we will live forever somewhere. Like the rich man, if God is not at the center of your life, you will be sent to hell. And there is a great chasm between heaven and hell. In other words, you don't get a second chance. You don't get an opportunity to say, oh, okay, okay, now I get it. Yes, now I want God. It's too late at that point. You see, hell is eternally thirsting. It's the absence of having that, 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 that quenched thirst that only God can provide. And the rich man is experiencing this because he placed all of his hope and he tried to quench all of his thirst in worldly things. And yet the poor man put God first in his life. And now he was the one comforted. You know, I think a good way to illustrate this is to imagine that this water bottle here um, represents your life. It represents your time. It represents your energy. It represents, you know, what, what you do with your time, what your priorities are. It represents everything that you are. And the reality is some of us live our life in such a way that we waste our time. We waste what God has given to us. And we run to the world and we try to get our thirst fulfilled with this thing over here or that thing over there. We spend time wasting it, pretending like we're never going to die, never thinking about it. And so on and on, we just waste it and waste it and waste it. And if you're not careful, you'll spend your entire life pouring out your life for things that do not mean anything. And as your life comes to an end, and you stand before God, it will then sink in. And you will see God, and you will look at your life, and you will say, oh, wait a minute. Oh, now let, let me gather up my time again. Let me, let me gather up some of this. And, and, and here, God, here, 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 I want to give it to you now. It'll be too late. What you do in this life matters. What you are focused on today matters. And the finality of death will be a reality for you. And so when we look to the cross of Jesus, we want to understand that our thirst is quenched in knowing him and in pursuing him. The final statement gives us a, a word that is hard for us to comprehend in verse 30, it says this, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. That Greek word is tetelestai. And it means it is finished. It comes from the Greek word telos, which means end or goal. Charles Spurgeon said we're gonna, that he would spend his entire life understanding this word and he would still not completely, fully understand it. 
Because in this one word, we see that Jesus is saying that everything that God sent him to do, he accomplished. Everything that he was sent to do is finished. The mission that God gave to him has been accomplished. What is this mission? What has he finished? Well, in the Greek, this word was used to really a, a kind of a stamp of um, a receipt. And so in the commercial setting, when this word was used, they would, they would stamp this word on your receipt, and it simply meant paid in full. So what Jesus is saying here is that I did everything required of me to pay the debt that my people owed to their heavenly father for their sin. Jesus said it's completely accomplished. He didn't say, look, I did my part, now you go do your part. He didn't say, I've done everything I can, now you guys go figure out the rest. He said, it is finished, which means everything required so that you and I can have heaven has been done. We simply have to confess our sin to him and put our faith and trust in his work on the cross to receive this forgiveness. I don't know about you, but that is some of the most glorious news that I've ever heard in my entire life because I, I know in my own life, I have a lot of regrets. I realize that I'm, I mess up a ton. I've got a lot of mistakes. And you probably walked into this room and, and you're struggling and dealing with some of those regrets in your own life. I mean, most of us would, would probably say, man, I've got sin in my life. Most of us uh, would realize what the Bible says, but maybe some of you don't realize the scripture says the wages of sin is death. In other words, the wages are what you owe God because of your sin is death. But not just a simple death from this life, but an eternal death in hell where you're separated from God. So what Jesus is doing on the cross is he's paying in full the debt that you owe to God. You could not pay that debt on your own. There's, there's no amount of money that you could give to the church to earn or to pay off God so that you could go to heaven. There's no amount of work, there's no amount of service that you could do for the Lord that would earn heaven for you. The only possible payment that would pay and satisfy the wrath of God towards sin is the death of his one and only son. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through who? Jesus Christ, our Lord. So the reality is for some of you today is, is you need your sins forgiven. Here's the bottom line if you're taking notes. When Jesus said it is finished, what he's essentially saying is that he died with no regrets so that your regrets could be forgiven. He died with no regrets. God, it's finished. I don't have any regrets. I did everything I was supposed to do. I accomplished the work fully and completely, 100%. The debt is paid for, God. I, I did it and I have no regrets. And he did that so that your regrets could be forgiven. You know, the reality is in this room, some of you have never given your life to Jesus. You come to church frequently or occasionally, but you've never made him the Lord of your life. You've never put him at the center of your life. And as a result, you're completely frustrated. You're probably frustrated with church and spirituality and you're frustrated with your, with your wife because she gets it and, and you don't understand it. You probably are frustrated at work and, 
and, and you probably have this vacuum and this emptiness in your own life that you're continually striving for the next latest and greatest to try to bring some satisfaction, to try to bring some happiness into your life. But here's the reality, nothing in this world that you sip from will quench your thirst. It is only through a relationship with Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com.